making a decision and then growing a process. And then that decision looks like this and it starts to look like this. And so I just thought, what a fun picture of what happens. Now, Burma has been in the news. Uh, the Rohingya, which are largely Muslims, are being heavily persecuted. But what happens when we read about the Christian church in Syria? What happens when we read about the Christians in Burma or, or, or in India that are under persecution in Egypt? Does that affect us? And I would say we are called to pray for the persecuted church. We're called to pray for government leaders. We're called in some way to participate. So Pastor Boy, would you just come up here for a minute and join me? And would you just share uh, this is Pastor Boyd. He's come a long way. He wins the Geography Award tonight. Uh, and so, uh, we're, we're very um, can you just tell us a little bit about your goal and then um, maybe uh, some of the challenges that you're experiencing, maybe first in the city and then when you go out to the villages in terms of opposition and people being able to receive the gospel? Especially their hunger for Christ. And <clears throat> as you know that our country is a poor country and military country. So we need uh, material supporting and especially prayer supporting. I like how you say prayer supporting. See, because in America, we like to get our education and we like to go to our families and we like to um, build up a whole lot of um, people we know um, so that we don't have to depend on God. But you start with prayer. Sure. So here, the, the children, so we train uh, with, how can I say that, uh, with the word of God. Uh huh. Yeah, through Bible study? Yes, Bible study and to grow up in uh, education. Yes. Okay. So are you offering literacy as well? Like, uh, the ability to read? Yes. Okay. So now they become uh, a little bit to read uh, the Bible. So you have a church that's meeting in your home. Um, and your home is a very small home in, in the capital city of Yangon. Yes. Um, and uh, how big would you say your, your home is right now? Mm. Every Sunday, <clears throat> my home is not so big, but 30 and 50 long feet. Yeah. So, so we gathering there to worship God. So every Sunday we worship God uh, with 20 over people. Okay. Yes. It's a one-room home, probably about the size of this center section of chairs. And uh, they gather and they have maybe 20 to 30 people come and they have intense times of prayer and worship and teaching. Uh, and I asked him the question about growing his church and he says, well, he owns the land and he'd like to kind of flatten out the home and build a hall because you can't actually go to um, a strip mall or you can't go to a school and have church. That's not part of the deal. 
But if you have your own space, you can have kind of a family reunion. You can have kind of your own home gathering. So he'd like to build a hall and then have an upper room or an apartment on top. We like to call it the upper room because Jesus had an upper room. Uh, And so he has this big plan to have uh, a growing church and to do a building project. Now, we have embraced a model that says we don't want to just grow a church based on more and more overhead. And so we've kind of like stayed away from the idea of having to do a building project or anything like that. But I said, what does it take to flatten your home, build a home maybe uh, 50 by by 30 so you can have growing? And he says, about uh, $3,000, $3,200. Oh, so you can do a lot with a little. And so I appreciate the work that God's doing in him. Now I said, tell me what you do for work. He says, I have no job. My job is to be the pastor and pastors don't get paid. But he has people throughout the country in the U.S. who have jobs and he has a couple of siblings that send him money. And so this is how the work, the gospel gets spread. So in all of our concerns over how is God going to take care of me, and we read that passage, God cares more about the hairs on your head and and, and 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 the birds of the field, and they don't worry. And I thought, this is what the gospel looks like when we choose to walk in faith. And when one person says yes, so do a bunch more. We just want to take a moment to, uh, to pray over him. Chip, would you just come forward as one of our um, kind of our board members and would you just say a word of prayer over him uh, as he continues uh, kind of the work of the gospel in Burma and let's just agree together as we go to the Lord. Holy Father, we're grateful for Yes, Lord, we thank you to Jesus. Jesus. We thank you for your work. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your living. We thank you that you have just come and you have come. Well, one of the things we want to pray about doing as as we get more involved is uh, figure out what is our participation. I've said from the beginning, I never wanted to have a missions department because I didn't want to rob each and every one of you of being a missionary. We're not going to hire a missions pastor. We're not going to hire and create a missions department, but we do have things like the Good Neighbor Fund. And so we are starting to have conversation and pray and and figure out what is our participation in this. So... uh, Every time you come in and you say, hey, I I made it to worship, here's a buck, because that's the cover charge for Mission Hills Church, uh, it gets to support things like that. And so we're we're just continuing to to practice generosity and to maybe be sensitive to the spirit and the opportunities that are in front of us. Um, I want to start a new series tonight that I'm kind of excited about because it has a lot, a lot of significance for uh, what I think is central to Christian faith. Uh, And I want to start a series uh, called Promises, Promises, which is really about God's covenant love. And before I get there, I want to tell you a story, one of the favorite parables that um, Dallas Willard used to tell. And it was a story that he would tell uh, about, um, in Florida, they have dog races. Has anyone ever been to a dog race? 
Um, the dog races, I've only seen them on TV, but they put a mechanical um, rabbit out in front that's, that's hooked to the inside of the rail. And so when the, 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 the gun goes off and the, the racing dogs are released, they don't just run because of competitive spirit. They're not thinking, I'm trying to beat. What they have to do is sort of keep something in front of them for them to chase. And so the rabbit always stays out in front. And so it, it might look something like this. Now, this is a picture of dogs that are muzzled. But what Dallas Willard tells the story is that one time there was a race without muzzled dogs and they caught the rabbit. The reason they caught the rabbit was because the electrical rabbit contraption broke. And so here's all of these dogs who have achieved the goal that's never been achieved. They caught the rabbit. And here's the thing that happened. They didn't know what to do. They start biting each other. They're yelping. They're, they're, they're barking. They, it, it, was, it was literally a dog pile right in the middle of the track. It was pandemonium. It was chaos. And Dallas Willard asks the question, I wonder if we are chasing rabbits um, that are so attainable that we attain them and then we don't know what to do with it. It's that underwhelming experience because we set this rabbit-sized goal and we go, got it. Maybe it was a title in our life. I want to be married. I want to be executive. I want to whatever. But we aspire to titles only to get titles and get underwhelmed by it. It's the rabbit we bite into and go, is that all there is? It's sort of like sinking your teeth, being really hungry, right into cotton candy. And you're like, still hungry. Maybe we, you know, kind of have these other type of rabbits that we're always chasing, uh, whether it be career goals or whether it be relational goals or whether it be sort of life goals. And, um, and, and we get there and again, it doesn't feel like we've accomplished. The prize doesn't feel like it, well, it's what we thought it would be. And finally, um, we get there and we don't know what to necessarily do with our lives. And what Dallas Willard is simply saying is people need a rabbit that won't break down. But that's not something our world, our world values that are full of posturing and sort of shallowness can really ultimately give us. And so I would say this, we live in a world that is so full of potential um, and yet the greatest potential doesn't rely on us. It doesn't rely on my wisdom or my cunning, um, sort of my personality, my strengths, my education, my wisdom. What the great potential of our world rests on is God's covenant love. Not just love in a sort of goosebump sort of way, God's covenant love. And covenant has to do throughout history and scripture with God restoring the world um, as it was intended, putting the pieces back together again. And so God creates in the Genesis account of Genesis 1 and 2, nothing but goodness. And God creates this goodness um, and then he creates us to bring about more goodness uh, and to help bring out the potential of all of it. So we're created for things like peace and justice. We're created to contribute to the goodness through, through hope and mercy. And we're created to bring generosity and community. And so we are God's instruments to raise and reach the potential of God's covenant love. 
That is huge. And God's covenant love uh, is supposed to be humanity's great unifier. It's supposed to be the thing that actually brings us together. God's covenant love is supposed to be the thing that actually diffuses our differences and actually brings us together. And why this is so important is God outlines at least five explicit covenants in scripture. Four of them come in the Old Testament. We have it with Noah, which we want to talk about tonight. We have it then with um, uh, Moses and the Israelites with that Mount Sinai encounter. We have it with Abraham and then King David. And then ultimately we get this new covenant inaugurated in the life of Christ. And so I want to spend time exploring these covenants because this is the backbone of all of scripture. And once we understand God's covenant love, and while we can enter into this partnership, then we can understand our purpose, our significance, our meaning. We can then start to define what battles we should be fighting and what rabbits we should be chasing. Because we're going to chase rabbits. That's what we do. Now, here's the thing. When you talk about covenant, it's supposed to be every covenant that God established has this sort of stipulation or command. God commands something, and with that, he's asked for promises to be made. So we, we have this vague idea of what it means to be in covenant relationship. And so what that does is it forms a partnership between us and God. The problem is, is that we don't actually like to be partners with God. We don't actually like to... In trust God. That doesn't feel natural to me. It feels more natural to trust me. Even though I don't always trust myself, I have a hard time trusting God. And humans, all of us, have the hardest time partnering with God, which is why we're stuck in a world of violence, stuck in a world of greed, stuck in a world of, of corruption. We're stuck in a world uh, with, with all sorts of division. But we're called to partnership. We're called to this covenant love because it sort of satisfies. So what I want to do is look at these really defining covenants over the next few weeks. Now, most people are really familiar with the story of Noah. There's a lot of water involved. There's a big storm involved. And we grow up hearing the story of Noah. But I want to talk about it in light of this covenant that is redemptive. Because we, if we're honest, can really look at the flood and go, and God was really angry and full of wrath. When in fact, God was really brokenhearted and had a lot of misgivings about a creation that was self-destructing. So how could a good parent watch their kid self-destruct? How could a good God simply stand idly by while the whole of creation was so fraught with wickedness that it was self-destructing? God had to intervene. Now let me give you a quick summary of where we're at. Maybe some of you remember this, but we're talking about just a few chapters into the whole of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we have the garden and the creation story, and then all of a sudden this interruption of sin. And all of a sudden, instead of having this divine intimacy, this I'm naked and unashamed, we learn shame, we learn fear, we learn regret. In three short chapters, Genesis 4 comes along and we have sibling rivalry. We have family drama at the outset because Cain takes his brother out into the field because he's mildly jealous and he kills him. 
if you think your kids are bickering, if you think you had it tough with an older brother or sister that was rough on you, try having Cain as the older brother who takes his brother out to a field because he thought he gave a better offering to their dad, and so he outs them. Say that differently. He offs them. <laughs> and that's Genesis 4. Genesis 5 rolls around, and what we start seeing is there's this phrase. It appears eight times, and it says this, and he died. And he died, and he died eight different times, revealing how death is now reigning over all of humanity. Genesis 6 shows up, and it describes this rapid advancement of evil so that God makes this plan to flood the earth. And he gives him this sort of building plan to say, build a big boat. I know you don't know of any idea what I'm talking about. There's never been a flood. There's never been anything like this. But trust me, I'm going to preserve you. This is the only way I know how. And God, with great sadness, with great sorrow, creates this plan. Well, what happens in Genesis 9, and then you go through 7 and 8, it is the flood, and it's all the twosies, you know, like arky, arky, twosies, twosies, and they come on the boat. And then, you know, doves go out and don't come back. And all of a sudden, Genesis 9, we have the sign. You remember the sign. It's the sign of the rainbow. It's the sign of God's covenant. And this is, this is what we read from God's covenant. And it simply says, and, and again, I'm just trying to kind of expedite. Rather than, uh, so God says, when I send the clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds and I will remember my covenant with you and all of the living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all of life. So after the flood, God makes this covenant, not just with Noah, not just with his family, but all the living creatures, um, so that, and despite humanity's growing evils, he will never destroy them again. Rather, he's going to preserve the world as he works towards fulfilling the promise of rescuing humanity. Now, the rainbow is really significant in a symbolic way because if you are a power-hungry person, if you are, are thinking of like might makes right or the strongest survive, then what is going to be your primary weapon but a bow? Maybe a sword, perhaps a spear. God chooses the symbol of a bow, as in a bow and arrow, because God is essentially, in the form of this promise, laying down his strength, laying down his weapons or the, the weapons of warfare and saying, I will never do this again. Now, what's interesting about the sign of the bow, the promise of the bow, is that there's only a promise made, but there's actually no sort of stipulation required. It's a one-way covenant. This is the only one we see that just goes this way. It's not necessarily going to be returned or reciprocal. Really significant. God makes a covenant promise to us. So every time we see the rainbow, we're saying God has laid down essentially surrendered to us and given, made a promise. And so I think that's really significant when we start to see this, this message played out. The Hebrew word for rainbow is the word keshet, and it used for the bow throughout the rest of scripture. It was the weapon of battle. This sign says that God laid down his blow, his weapon, and he promised to not repeat the judgment uh, of the flood, even if humanity never changed. I wish we would. I wish I would. 
but yet God remains faithful. God, uh, people become so precious to God that he commits to finding an answer to the problem of sin other than the obvious one of universal judgment. Praise God. Praise God because he gives us a choice. Praise God because he looks at us individually and doesn't say, can't you be like all the rest of the good ones? But God is continually trying to court a people unto himself through covenant that would then begin to reach all of humanity. So the covenant with Noah is the most basic one of all. It's a promise to find a way to redeem humanity from evil rather than just judge it for its sin. reason I wanted to bring this up, and maybe I can illustrate it this way. That's a story we're mostly familiar with. That's a story that maybe we even wrestle with. But it's pretty important when we start to understand that the potential of this world is rooted in God's covenant love. How many of you are familiar with Westboro Baptist Church? Anyone? They are um, a really kind of uh, ultra-antagonistic very uh, hellfire and brimstone church that is the ones that get all the publicity in America for protesting, for holding up signs and for picketing. They're the ones that show up and in the name of God say really terrible things, condemn people to hell, say all of the awful things that if you are a Christian, you go, oh gosh, that, that just made my job harder oh my gosh, don't lump me in with those people. And so this is Westboro Baptist Church. They have a whole mission to make a, a kind of national presence, uh, whether it be, um, well, n- name the social issue, even if it's war, they've been known to protest at veterans' um, memorial services. Uh, so it's not a group, that, but they are just bound and determined to speak God's truth Uh, as best they understand it and to um, be as courageous as possible in the name of God with high conviction because the truth hurts and you need to hear it. And this week I saw, I don't know how many of you caught this, but they, um, and some of you have a relationship with Riverbend Church, they decided to descend on Riverbend to picket Riverbend Church this morning. Uh, And so Riverbend Church has been outed as this and, and they had this way of describing um, their ministry basis uh, was this lame, soft-spoken, uh, I mean, they had some really weird language about basically lukewarm Christianity. These people who um, have no conviction but just make it tolerant and permissive. So Riverbend somehow got on their radar and got picketed this morning. And so uh, my son... Um, sees this on Instagram and so he says did you know about this and I said yeah actually I'd heard about it and Dave Haney had written a post this week and so I had kind of just become vaguely familiar with it and and let me just say this as we talk about God's covenant love and this is what I tried to share and explain to my son because uh, I, I described it as I'm sad for both groups because this won't actually help or heal anyone. It won't actually move anyone further along. In fact, both sides, and I hate to make it an either or, but both sides will become more emboldened and actually more antagonistic towards the other side. There's no solution. And God's covenant love always works towards restoration, towards healing. So when we start from a position of blame and accusation, we're always starting with the defense mode. 
And what I understand is that God's message for all of us is that in scripture and in relationship, there is no place for retirement or spiritual arrival. Some of you have heard me say this. And so as I was sharing this with my son, uh, who's a freshman in college right now, and he's, you know, wanting to ask the question. So they're just on two kind of opposite sides. They're too, too, too spread out down the spectrum. And I said, well, maybe that's one way to look about it. You, could, you can kind of say one's way right and one's way left, and if they could just come to the middle and we can have compromise, then it would be okay. I'd say, I think that's one way to look at it. Actually, I look at both of those as two sides of the same coin because both of them are operating from a very fixed position. And the fixed position actually keeps us from being more teachable. Uh, and so they're, they're pointing figures, they're laying blame, they're growing comfortable with those who look and act and believe as similar to ourselves as possible. So one side would say, you know, we want to be really, really gracious. And so you err on the side of being really, really tolerant. Well, one side would say, we want to err on the side of being true to God's word. And so we're going to err on the side of pointing fingers at anyone who's wrong. And here's what I understand. When you talk about the difference between grace and truth, scripture always joins grace and truth. Because what happens is if you get truth without grace, you get rigid legalism. But if you get grace without truth, all you are left with is feel-good sentimentalism don't ever change. And neither honors God. It's only when you combine grace and truth that the Spirit of God and God's Word comes alive and it has the power to transform lives. We need to be about grace and truth. We need to build up walls and also have gates. But if you have no walls, you're totally vulnerable. But if you have no gates, you're totally inaccessible. And so when we start to see God's covenant love, what we see is that when covenant happens, this partnership with God happens, what we see happening is that there is an exchange. There's a commitment with a promise. There's truth with grace. And that's what covenant really is all about. It's how we learn to partner with God. And without being a, in partnership or in covenant with God, I think we end up chasing rabbits only to catch one and not know what to do with once we catch it. So what kind of rabbits should we be chasing? When I was reading the story about, uh, that I began with, uh, that um, Dallas Willard made a few observations. He, he was talking about chasing rabbits at the, at the dog track, and uh, he was talking about what kind of rabbits should we be chasing lest we catch one and feel underwhelmed with what, because oftentimes we found a Christianity that feels underwhelming. We, we, we found a kind of untransformational, unlife-changing faith, and we're going, I thought it would, I thought it would, it would be more impactful. I, th I, th I thought it would make a bigger difference. 
And this is what he would say, and, and I'm reading here. First, it has to be tied to something that transcends the individual's life. We should devote the rest of our lives to doing the things we know to be good and profitable for humanity. And that means especially for human beings who live around us. We should devote ourselves, our lives to advancing their well-being. In some cases, and this is my own parenthetical thought, this means showing grace and at other times it means showing truth. But this, his type of significance and success will require surrender. I don't think that you can really manage surrender within the parameters of success. You have to give up. You have to surrender to the other good before it can achieve the kind of significance that you're talking about. See, I think the reason we need to pursue Jesus is because Jesus, what we'll see, is the only faithful covenant partner. The reason God kept making covenants is because we kept breaking them ultimately sending someone who could fulfill, and we'll talk about how Jesus fulfilled all four of the Old Testament covenants and was able to become the only faithful partner. And so it's the only partner that allows us to rise above the mess and live with hope. And humanity's vulnerability and brokenness isn't the final word but God became human so that we could have this covenant partner. And through Jesus, we have a way that's opened up to us to have this renewed partnership with God. And the beauty is when you get to the end of the book, when you get to Revelation and you start to see what it looks like, it looks like a new humanity. And so you get to the end of the book and, and the story ends about a renewed humanity, a new heaven and a new earth. And so the Bible ends and it's actually a beginning. This is what was intended for covenant relationship, that we can begin again, but we can actually walk in faith and obedience into this living relationship with God. All of these Old Testament covenants only point us to the only faithful covenant partner that we can ever have, and he invites us to walk in grace and truth because that's, that's the power to change lives. So can we pray about that together? Our Father in heaven, I'm aware that we, um, we've all been on the receiving end of, of, of truth hurting. We've all been on the receiving end of um, maybe not feeling the conviction of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would stir in our minds and in our hearts uh, a kind of healing truth, a kind of drawing unto yourself. I pray that you would speak to us about our partnership with you in Christ. I thank you that you made a promise to us through Noah and you laid down any kind of power and strength and say, even if we won't change, you will not just annihilate us, but you will be faithful in ultimately working out how to be in relationship with us. So thank you. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can have this renewed partnership, that we can be a part of a renewed humanity, and that we can be part of your salvation locally, here in Austin, globally. Pray that we would be kingdom citizens on earth, that we would be able to stand in the gap, that we would be able to honor you with the whole of our lives, with the 
with all the rabbits we're chasing because we would have such a God-sized vision. We would have such a heart that's set apart for you. That things like managing our status and our, and our net worth and our, and our relational longings would take a second back seat to finding our life in you. So I pray that you would renew us in this time. I pray that you would just speak to us in a really personal way about your love and our partnership with you. Thank you for your promise today, in Jesus' name.